morning again, CFC. We find ourselves uh, continuing in the book of Revelation. Would you turn there? Easy to get there. Last book of the Bible. Uh, We're in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. And on tap for today is Christ's message to the church in Thyatira, which is 2.18 to 29. Let me pray for us and then we'll jump in. Father, we do ask that you would speak to us through your word. You do speak through your word, but we don't always have ears to hear. So we pray that you would unstop our ears, open our eyes, um, soften our hearts, do the work in us necessary to receive what you say to us, this church, all these years later. Help us to press ahead and to endure by holding fast to what you teach, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at these seven messages to these seven churches in the out, at the outset of the book of Revelation, really, we could see them as a threat assessment. Jesus comes to them and, and, and legitimizes them as churches, sometimes saying, I'll, I'll delegitimize you as a church, and I'll take that lampstand away. But insofar as you are currently a, a lampstand, here are the things that you think, I think you're doing great, commendations, and then here are the things that you need to fix, corrections. Right? Commendations and corrections for most of these churches. Only two of the seven churches have no corrections. Today, in Thyatira, they have a big section on correction after a brief uh, commendation. But here's what I want you to understand. That some of these letters focus on uh, threats to the church that are outside of the church. Right? The, 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 the governing powers that have the uh, power to arrest you for your faith, to throw you in jail for your faith, to even execute you or torture you or both for your faith. But then we see this, this other stream, this other kind of threat, which is inside the church. It happens inside the doors of the church. And these are not people that come with guns. These are not people that wear badges. These are people that attend Sunday school. These are people that show up in growth group. These are people that come on Sundays and they're nice and they're attractive. I don't mean physically. I mean the way they speak. They're winsome. And they come with Bible knowledge. And you're like, ooh, I never heard that before. And that is as dangerous, if not more dangerous, than the threats that we should be aware of outside the church. Now, we saw that when we looked at the letter to Pergamum, but we're going to see that theme again today, that churches that are supposed to endure to the end, one of the reasons why some churches don't endure to the end is because they don't assess threats from inside the church. One such threat today is the so-called, so-called progressive Christianity. Progressive Christianity, which is really no Christianity at all, which would be obvious to any maturing believer. Some of you are like, I never heard of it. Yes, you have. Yes, you have. Because these people don't walk around with progressive Christianity badges. They don't show up to your work with a 
progressive Christianity tattoo on their... But if you understand what pro- progressive Christianity is, you go, oh, yeah, my coworker, my friend, my boss, my spouse, my kids. It's dangerous because they claim to be Christian. They claim to be more Christian than you are. They claim to follow Jesus more tightly than you do. You stiff, pharisaical hypocrite holding to traditional views, not getting with the times, totally misunderstanding radical Jesus. You don't read your Bible carefully enough. They are an evolved version of liberal Christianity. They have a statement uh, on their website, and by they, I mean... and anybody who holds to these is considered a progressive Christianity, whether they're aware of this website or not. But there's a website, progressivechristianity.org. And at first I thought, ooh, maybe I shouldn't tell them about the website because what if they go digging? And then I thought, we are not afraid of false teaching. We are not afraid of false teaching. Go read it. But read it discerningly. Read it with wisdom. They say on their website, these are our core values They obviously keep changing. They have to. They're progressive, right? You can't stay static for too long. This is their 2022 version. They say, by calling ourselves progressive Christians, we mean we are Christians who, and I'm not going to read all of it. Let me just give you three of them. There's five statements. We mean that we are Christians who believe that following the way and teachings of Jesus can lead to experiencing sacredness, wholeness, in unity of all life. Do you already feel like you're in a yoga session? It's not that the words are bad. You could just kind of tell the way they're tilting it. It's not that we're following Christ, the God-man, the Son of God. We follow his way. We follow his teachings. Unity of all life, even as we recognize that the Spirit, capital S, moves in beneficial ways in many faith traditions. We're progressive because we're Christian, but we recognize that the Spirit of God moves and benefits people in other religions. So you don't have to follow Jesus. You can follow a totally different religion. You do you. Second core value. We are Christians who seek community that is inclusive of all people. I hate that word. Let me just hold off on that for a second, and I'll tell you why I hate that word. We seek to be a community that is inclusive of all people, honoring differences in theological perspective, age, race, sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, class, or ability. Now here's... here's two problems I have with this, at least, okay? The first problem is this, this term inclusive. Who is not allowed to come to the cross? Nobody. What kind of sin can you do and you're not allowed to come to the cross? The cross is inclusive, isn't it? It's all inclusive. No matter where you come from, no matter what your past is, no matter what your situation, you can come to the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We don't give a quiz, how bad were you, never mind, get out of our church. But they want to include inclusivism to mean do whatever you want. 
Not come however you were, but it's come however you were and stay however you were. No change necessary. That's what they mean. But that's not inclusive because what are you including them to? They're still doing what they were doing before. What did you include them in? What did you include them in if they're able to just stay in what they already were? This is a very unattractive gospel because it's a nothingness gospel. Come to Jesus and what? Fill in the blank, fill in your own blank. Come to Jesus and continue to be who you are. What am I coming to Jesus for? So that's why I have an issue with this word inclusive. Christians are so exclusive. You exclude yourself if you don't come to Jesus for his grace. See community that is inclusive of all people. Here's the other issue. And here's, here's what you'll hear around the water cooler, at work, your friends, those of you getting ready to go to college. This is going to be crammed down your mouth. Every class. It'll be a math class and they'll, they'll stuff it down your mouth. Notice how they lump things that no Christian I ever heard of. What traditional Christian keeps people out of church because of their age? How, how old are you? 60? 60 what? <laughs> this church is not for you. Would you please find another church? Could you believe this guy? I never heard of it. Ability. Have you ever heard of a church? Tell me if there's one. Have you ever heard of a church that in their doctrinal statement believes that if somebody is too disabled, they can't come to church? Now, sometimes churches don't pay enough attention to people in this situation, and they only have stairs, and just, there's no ramp, you know, for example. But that's different than excluding people based on their age, based on their race. First of all, how many races are there? One. There's one race. It's the human race. Then there's ethnicities. So to take race, age, theological perspective, class, or even ability, and then sneak in the ones that they're really talking about, which is sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression. And I don't have to educate you probably on the spiraling out of control agenda where we're coming to a place where <laughs> children can consult outside of their parents knowing to have their bodies mutilated. Mutilated. Without going back. This isn't a tattoo you, you wish you didn't get 10 years later. Oh, we stand for this. We're progressive. I'll just read one more. It's their last one. It says, we are Christians. We are progressive Christians because we are Christians who commit to a path of lifelong learning. That's their way of saying, you're dumb. Whatever you were taught in Sunday school and you still believe that, you're an idiot. This is why when I teach you guys big words and stuff and we sing hymns with shouts of acclamation, you're like, what's acclamation? Look it up. You should have on your phone a Bible and a dictionary because they see us as stupid and uneducated and we can't talk in terms where we they are able to recognize, hey, we study, we read, we learn. We don't just bury our heads in the sand. But they commit to a path of lifelong learning, believing there is more value in questioning than in absolutes. Now, I've stated over and over again at this church that we love questions. Ask questions. We don't rebuke questions. 
questions are good. But, but prominent Bible characters throughout Scripture ask questions. They take them to the Lord. Now, God has the, the right to either answer that question or say, that's above your pay grade. But we don't stifle questions here. But So the, the problem isn't that they value questioning. It's that they say that we value questioning more than absolutes. You can never say, this is right. You, have, you can only say, this is right for me. And if you really want to one-up that, you'd say, this is right for me, but I still question it. You know, I'm not sure. If I'm too sure, then I'm an arrogant fool. But if I'm unsure, then I've reached wisdom. The pinnacle of wisdom is not knowing anything at all. Well, if I sound harsh, it's because it is harsh and it does damage the church and it is dangerous to the church and you should be aware of what people are claiming is Christianity and is not. And they're everywhere. On that same website, I read this article, not word for word. I read as much as I was able to stomach, honestly, but it's called Three Possible Paths for People Who Lose Traditional Faith. Hey, have you lost traditional faith? That's okay. Actually, that's more than okay. That's great. They're so stuck on absolutes. It's good that you've progressed past that. Here are three ways to progress past it. Path number one is progressive faith, which truly, if you read their description of it, it's essentially chisel off of Christianity what you don't like and hold just to the things that you do like. Now, what are the things you do like? Whatever the world likes. What are the things you chisel off? Whatever the world says they don't like about Christianity. Well, chisel that off and just hold to the likable things about Christianity and you join us in our progressive faith. Path number two is non-traditional faith. You still have faith, but not in a singular God, Yahweh, uh, Jesus. You know, he, he, maybe he even didn't even exist. You know, who knows? He just. But you have religious faith. You're spiritual, but it's not the Christian faith. Hey, that's okay. It's just path number two. It's just path number two. So you're not a progressive Christian because you dumped Christianity altogether. You're not keeping some of it and dumping some of it. You just want to dump the whole thing, but you don't want to dump the idea that there's a God. Okay. Serve whatever God then. That's a legitimate path for them. In the article, he likens it to Star Wars. Just sort of, there's a force, but it's not a person. There's, there's a power out there that you can tap into, a higher energy, you know, but it's not, it's not a person. And that's okay. You can depersonalize your faith. And then the third option is no faith at all. Now I thought, well, here at least he might go, look, hey, you have to at least have something. He's like, nah, totally legit. No faith at all? Cool. He says some people become non-believers, and he says these people are great. And then he recommends resources to read if this interests you. And one of the, the first resource he recommends is Farewell to God by Charles Templeton, who was the preacher who used to run, the, the go on the preaching circuits with Billy Graham. And uh, if I have this right, I remember Billy Graham saying he was a better preacher than I was. But Charles Templeton lost his faith, became an atheist, and then wrote a book called Farewell to God. And he's like, here, here read this, totally legit. Now, this is a retired minister of the United Methodist Church providing options of what it means to either be progressive or non-traditional or no faith at all. Churches uh, are in danger of these teachings 
it's attractive because it takes the pressure off. Pressure inside the church is not unrelated to pressure outside the church. You're experiencing pressure outside the church because you're different. Because you're quote-unquote traditional. How do you take that pressure off? Join the naysayers inside the church that are trying to infiltrate the church and say, well, we can just be more like the world but still hold our faith. That's why it's tempting. If everybody out there thought that it was ridiculous to mutilate children's bodies, then it wouldn't be a pressure point, would it? It's only a pressure point because that's the pressure out there. So then the infiltration and the false teaching that comes inside the church is only alluring because it helps take the pressure off out there. I understand that there's pressure, and you all face pressures in various ways. In lots of ways. We may not be at the point where we're about to be arrested for our faith, but you are always at the point where you have to choose a spouse that believes specific things. And not go, well, she's really fine. Do I really have to hold to, ah, start chiseling your faith so you can accommodate who you want to marry? That's the same thing. That's the same thing. So to endure as a church, Jesus wants to give them a survival manual. And the survival manual includes looking out there, look out, watch out, but watch out of what's happening inside here with regard to teaching that is false. And every single letter begins with the person of Jesus Christ shining in his brilliance and demonstrating that he is the sole judge. Not culture, not the prevailing winds of uh, academia, but Jesus Christ himself. Look at the first line there in verse 18. Here's the letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. We've touched on some of this stuff before, but his fiery eyes speak of judgment. Burnished bronze speaks of purity. You put them together. Pure judgment. Right judgment. What he says is right. What he says is true. If he corrects, that's a true correction that needs to happen. If he commends, that's a true commendation that is a praise of, for the church. What Jesus says is right. What Jesus says is true. He is in command of his churches. It's his way or the highway. He holds the lampstands. He's just reminding us that in verse 18. Then he doesn't just correct the negative. He commends them for the positive because enduring as a church takes both. To last until the end as a church, it takes not just correcting all the time, but commending for what's good. And so he begins with that. He says, verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. This is the opposite of the correction I have to return to your first works. Return to the works you did at first. This is the opposite. Your works are better now than they were before. Now, the Greek for exceed allows better in quantity or better in quality. Are they doing more things than they were before, or are they doing things better than they were doing them before? Yeah, both. I don't think we need to make a choice. Isn't that a hallmark of the Christian life, to grow and you're doing more things than you were doing before? Good things. You're doing less things than you were doing before if it's bad things. And you're doing them better. 
you're doing them better than you were before. That's just maturity and growth. And he's recognizing that you, you all have matured. You've been growing in love, works, faith, service, patient endurance. These are increasing works, and he commends them for that. These positive traits help a church endure, and that's great. But Jesus also wants to see some correction. And what they're struggling with in the church at Thyatira is tolerance of sin. You see that in 20 to 23. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. How's that for yoga Jesus? Well, let's back up and see what he's doing here with this correction. So we can understand what we're supposed to take from it. This church at Thyatira has a self-proclaimed prophetess among them who is seducing them into sin, specifically the sins of sexual immorality and idol food. Food. This is just so strange to us how all this is wrapped up in idolatry. We think of idolatry as just sort of having a, a graven image above your mantle place and paying respects to it somehow. Well, what, some of the ways that they paid respects was sex and food. I mean, two indulgences that are easy to go, oh, I I get to do more of that? (laughs) I'll follow that God. And so it's all wrapped up with the idolatry that is leading to, I mean, there's nothing wrong with food, but they're eating food. I mean, food is wrapped up in worship as we experience each Sunday. But this is a perversion of that. To take food that we get from God to sustain our bodies And rather than nourishing ourselves spiritually in that act, it is to degrade ourselves spiritually in that act when it's tied to idolatry. It's the same thing with sexual immorality. It's not that, you know, God created something beautiful. It is perverted and taken out of its appropriate context, and then it becomes immoral. So just like Satan, to take the things that are good that God gives us as beautiful gifts, to twist them, to make them... Um, the lures that bring us out of step with what Jesus commands. And at least for this church, this woman is leading this. She is the one who um, is ministering, supposedly, in this church, and uh, some people are listening. They're like, oh, is that how it goes? And And they're following her. So similar to what we saw with the previous church, Pergamum, Uh, But this time we have a specific teacher and maybe even more overt sexual relations because he says he's, you know, she's committing sexual immorality. Her followers are guilty of adultery. And uh, Jesus calls her Jezebel. I I don't think that was her actual name. 
I don't I don't know how many people would actually even in that time you know name their daughter Jezebel. I think just like we saw before, was it actual teaching of Balaam? No, Balaam died way long ago. Balaam is in the Old Testament. Jezebel's not around. She didn't resurrect. She's an Old Testament character. Jesus is just calling this woman a Jezebel. Why? Because of who Jezebel was in the Old Testament. Quick lessons, you understand what Jesus is trying to say about this current Jezebel in Thyatira. The original Jezebel was a Phoenician princess who married King Ahab, who was the seventh king of Israel after the split between Judah and Israel. And uh, she ran things. All right, Jezebel ran things. And she uh, brought into the nation her worship of Baal, and she instituted official nationwide worship of Baal. Well, you might ask, well, weren't there prophets around to correct this? Yeah, she killed them. Even after Elijah's wonderful display of God's power on Mount Carmel, she, in her wrath, uh, went after the prophets. And if you'll remember, Elijah ran into the wilderness. He fled into the wilderness, deflated in a spirit of defeat, thinking he was the only one left. God's like, you're not the only one left. You think I only secured you? I've lied. They're around. And that's a similar word we get from Revelation, isn't it? Seems like you're outnumbered. Seems like you're the only one. You're the last church. No, you're not. God's got his kingdom. So what we have here is the same kind of syncretism. Remember, two opposing systems of belief that are mashed together. And they don't get along. You know, the, the only way to mash them together is one of them to not be what it's supposed to be. And so here you have Yahweh demanding worship right, built into the Ten Commandments right at the top. Commandment one, commandment two, worship me only and worship me only the way I said worship me. Those are the first two commandments. How can that be mashed together? It can't. You have to lop those commandments off. The only way is to chisel off the stuff you don't like. So that's what happened with Jezebel, marrying Ahab and leading Israel down that path. And Jesus is saying, you basically have a Jezebel running among you now. And so she is, like we saw with Pergamum, she is seducing the church. How is she seducing the church? Showing up in short skirts, makeup, teaching. She's a prophetess. And she's seducing them with her teaching. In fact, the word there, seducing, can be translated deceiving. And every other time it's used in the book of Revelation, it's, at least in the ESV, it's translated deceiving. And every other use in the Old Testament, it's only used of the beast, Babylon, and the devil. And, and so here, here's, here's why I keep bringing this up, okay? We have Christians that either ignore Revelation because they don't understand anything in it. That's me most of the time, right? Let's just be honest. And then you have the other people that they, they want to look in the newspaper and find out who is the beast, right? Who is the Antichrist? Oh, might this be the Antichrist? We heard about rumors of war. I just saw a rumor of war on Twitter. Is this the end? Always trying to figure out the precise person and here you have uh, John, right, commissioned through Jesus to send this letter to Thyatira. Every other moment of deceit in the book of Revelation is the devil, the beast, 
Babylon, right? Only once do we have a specific person, and it's a random lady showing up at church, showing up in Bible studies, teaching the wrong stuff. That's the beast. It's not just politics and governors. It is not just waiting till the moment we get thrown in jail. It's Tuesday night Bible study, guys. This is now. Are we in the end times? Yes. Because the church is under threat of persecution from the outside and infiltration from the inside. Christians are seduced, plana, to deceive. And it is foolishness to think that's only going to take place in the political sphere. So, more concerned, we should be more concerned with someone showing up in Bible study and saying something like, I think Jesus loved everyone and he would never push anyone away for disobeying outdated morals. Isn't our temptation to be like, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, you know. But we'd freak out if the wrong person became president. And we're like, oh, are we going to lose our rights? It should be the other way. President, this person, president, that person, Jesus is king. He wins. But what about our church? Are we going to endure to the end? Someone shows up with the progressive stuff, we need to be like, hey, that's heresy. It would be unloving not to. So Jesus commends them for a lot of things, and then he rebukes them. Not for Jezebel's sins. What does he rebuke them for? If you look carefully, I have this against you. You being the church, not Jezebel. You tolerate her. That's the problem. The problem is tolerating her stuff. Allowing this infectious disease to spread in the congregation. Allowing her to dupe people with her so-called version of Christianity. Tolerating it is the problem. And Jesus doesn't want them to tolerate deceptive teaching. There's so many ways to talk about this. But since she was a prophetess, let's think about that for a minute. Now there are people all over YouTube (laughs) claiming to be prophets. I had a dream. Here's this prophecy. And they produce this stuff and people latch onto it. And they're not just left to YouTube. They show up in churches. Let me see if I could do this quickly. Christians debate about what is meant by prophecy. And I can't get into all of it this morning. But let's allow for a moment this definition that prophecy is a word from God to a person for someone else. Okay? A word from God, a a special word from God to a person for somebody else. That's a prophet. If it were just God to the person, thank you, that really helped me, that wouldn't be a prophet. A prophet then takes that word and proclaims it to somebody else. Now, Christians debate about the precise meaning, but let's just grant that for a minute. Now, that's what she's claiming to be. That's what she's claiming to do. I have a word from God. And here's what he's telling us. Let's even allow for a moment that that gift is still operative today. There's another landmine I'm not going to step in for this sermon. But let's just, you know, some Christians say certain gifts don't exist today. There's no prophecy today, for for instance. 
Others say, well, it's today, but here's some caveats. Some, it's today, there are no caveats. Let's just say it is operative today, all right? All prophecies are to be tested. All prophecies are to be tested. We'll put this up on the screen real quick. 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 22. Jesus, this is what Jesus expects the church to do by not tolerating false teaching or false prophecy. Here's Paul writing to the Thessalonians. Do not despise prophecies. Don't hate them, but test them. Test everything and hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. You see how false teaching leads to evil. Right? Guard the teaching, and that'll help the behavior of the church. If you don't guard the teaching, you'll hold fast to evil teaching. And what, how's that going to manifest itself in your church? Evil behavior. We see that in Pergamum. We see that in Thyatira. We see that in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. Don't despise prophecies, but test them. And some of those things are going to be not true. Some of those things are going to be evil. And you dump those, discard those, and only hold fast to the ones that are true. Now I ask you, how can you test a prophecy if it's not able to be submitted for examination? And a lot of the stuff that goes around as prophecy today can't even be tested. And I, I, I want to tell you, I think it's immediately garbage if it's not testable. Just go back to progressive Christianity for, for a minute. Do you remember their core value? There are no absolutes. You can't test it. What are you going to do? Pull scripture out? That's absolute. That's your absolute interpretation. Ah, that's an absolute truth. You can't say it's wrong because that's an absolute statement. Imagine you were tasked with teaching a class. It doesn't matter what age. Kindergarten, college, it doesn't matter. Just imagine for a second you were in charge of teaching a class, your favorite subject, whatever the subject is. You're preparing these students for an exam at the end, okay? You're preparing, that's your job. You're preparing these students to pass this exam in the end. But what you teach along the way is that there's no absolutes. Here's what I think, but you think what you think. What would that exam look like exactly? What kind of question can you ask on that exam if the entire way you're just saying, this is my view, but you do you? Well, if I'm doing me, I'm not showing up to final exam day. And you do you and give me an A. Because I'm only doing what you just said. Right? There's no standard against which to hold the student. Do you understand what I'm saying? Progressive Christianity is not testable because you already lost absolutes. Believe whatever you want. But what about Matthew and Matthew Schmatthew? You might as well read Second Lucas or write your own. You can't test it. Here's another example, just so you, just so you can understand what I'm saying. I showed up at a, a, a pro-life banquet. Hundreds, hundreds of people, special speakers. It was actually really beautiful. And we sat around a table with mostly people I didn't know. Actually, I don't think I knew anybody at this particular table. And we shook hands and we ate and drank together and all this kind of stuff. And it was a nice evening. And I got to meet one couple that's from another country. And we chatted a little bit. And they were really nice. You know, it seems like they've been Christians for a long time. Sounds like they went to a solid church. But I I didn't know them past a, a dinner conversation. I think it was the next day or the next evening I get an email from the husband of one of those couples that I met who said, I was praying and the Lord gave me a word for you. And immediately I was like, this better be good, man. 
This better be good. Do you know what they did to people in the Old Testament that claimed to be prophets? And the prophecy didn't come out true? I mean, you're, you're basically bearing the, names, uh, the name of the Lord in vain. You're to be executed. Well, I have a word from the Lord from you, and this person literally meant word. And the word is Cuban. Cuban. I, I don't know. Is this like I shouldn't smoke cigars? I don't. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. God bless you. I hope the Lord keeps you and everything. And I'm like, okay. A few days later, I fly to New Jersey. I'm the main speaker at a conference. And I forget how it tied into what I was teaching, but I mentioned that as an example, as an illustration, as I am now. And uh, eventually I get on a panel with some other pastors, other speakers at the conference. And, you know, everybody laughed when I mentioned the Cuban thing. And I try to do it carefully. I'm not against Pentecostals. I'm not against Charismatics. I just was talking about this. We need to test things and be careful with things. And my point was you can't test that. Cuban. It could be anything or anyone. I don't know. And it can happen at any time. It's not you will meet a Cuban by Thursday next week. That's testable because by Thursday next week, did I meet a Cuban? It's either true or it's false, but just throw Cuban out there. After church, if I came up to you, I have a special word. Can you come here for a minute? I have a special word. Sweater. <laughs> You'll be 98 years old. Is this today? Is this the day that sweater comes true? You don't know, right? Now, I was informed that on the panel, the guy next to me, one of the preachers, is Cuban. <gasps> the next week, I meet a Cuban? What did, it, what did it mean? He didn't even know what it meant, right? We just laughed about it. Did you know, somebody came up to me, did you know that Pastor so-and-so is Cuban? His mom is Cuban. I was like, wow, that's awesome. I would much prefer you just go like this, pick a verse, and read it to me. Because at least it's God's word. And I can at least test if you read it right. It's attractive because it's extra. It's attractive because it it throws us into this realm of less absolutes, this foggy place where there's no hard edges or hard rules. We're sick of that. We we hate that we grew up with that and we want to slough that off and enter a zone where it's just kind of more of a free-for-all. Now, I don't think that's what that person intended. I think he just is trying to channel a gift that somebody told him he had. I don't know what the deal is. And that kind of stuff can also be hurtful to the church. It's distracting at best and hurtful at worst. Let's stick with what Jesus clearly has taught us and cling to that. We have to push ahead, but you see the consequences here. Jesus is patient with this, but he will act in judgment. He says he's going to take this false teacher, whatever her real name is, and throw her on a sickbed. Now I want you to see, it's easy to read that and be like, ooh, harsh. He could have just thrown her into the grave. Why a sickbed? Give her a chance to repent. He said, I was, I've been waiting for her to repent. He's not like, all Jezebel should just die. As much trouble as she's causing, he's giving her time, and then more time by throwing her into a sickness rather than into death. And she's the cause of everything here. The followers will experience great tribulation of any kind of... We don't know exactly what kind he's going to send their way unless they repent. There there it is again. Jesus is not uh, 
dying to crack the whip or pull out the sword. He wants change and he wants repentance. So here's a key point. Jesus is patient with his church, but patience is not to be confused with inaction. Patience is not to be confused with inaction. Jesus' indictment is tolerance, letting things happen. So what is the prescription? Doing something about it, action. If his indictment is inaction, you're not doing anything about it, then what the church is supposed to do is do something about it. We call that church discipline. And we can take our cue from Christ here. Uh, We can call it a serious patience or a proactive patience. Patience that has a long wick, but guess what's at the end of that wick? There's a dynamite kaboom. Not no wick, but also not no dynamite. So quick examples, parents. This is just, you know, as the household goes, so goes the church, as we've seen in Scripture time and time again. So for parents, we're not to discipline harshly at every moment. Every time the child disobeys or makes a mistake, it's bam, full consequence, just right there, ready to go. It's almost like the parent is like, do it, go ahead, do it, do it. Bam, I was ready for that. Is that how Jesus does it? Apparently not. And so as parents, we're not to discipline harshly at every moment, but we're also not to tolerate misbehavior. And just a kid, and teenage years, and I did it too. Yeah, how'd it go for you? Correct. The patient but serious parent gives warnings, supplies ways to go another route, but then gives consequences that aren't just punitive for the sake of punishment, but they're meant to bring the child back in line. That's what biblical discipline looks like. It's not a random consequence. It's a consequence meant to check you and bring you back, steer you back into line for your own good. Not just, I hate you, I don't want to see you, you're in your room for three months. Why three months and why the room? It should make sense. The consequence should help the child get back in line, and that's how Jesus treats his churches. So how do we apply this to churches? We're to be patient as a church. We don't just excommunicate people or toss them out of membership at the first sign of disobedience to God's word. None of us would be members. But we think about the process in Matthew 18, for example. One-on-one approach, that doesn't work. Bring a couple witnesses, that doesn't work. Then take it to the church, right? We don't do the two extremes, no wick, no dynamite, which would be never confront them, just talk to other people about them and how you don't associate with that person anymore. But you never confronted the person one-on-one, that's unbiblical. But the other extreme would be to take it straight to the church. How can this person be in the church? Just straight to excommunication without that process of giving the person a chance? No, long wick, but there is a consequence at the end. And this is how parents govern the household. This is how churches govern the church. Long patience, but a patience that's not inactive. We approach, we talk, we give chances, we give opportunities, we discuss, we show verses, we try to show logical inconsistencies in their approach, etc. And we're trying to steer them back in line. And then look at the effect in verse 23. The effect of the discipline isn't only for the sinner to repent, but it's for a chastening example for other churches, right? So that other churches will know. Will know what? That Jesus has fiery eyes and doesn't play around. (laughs) And so the way things go with one church affect how other churches go. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about signing a letter that went out to a prominent church. And it's like, well, why doesn't each church just mind their own business? 
Maybe because each letter in this church went to all the churches. And then in this case, you see how the lack of discipline in one church can uh, affect other churches. And the uh, discipline of one church can be uh, taken note of by other churches. We're supposed to be holding this thing together as solid lampstand churches. And they'll see that God, through Jesus Christ, judges each person according to their works. And that judgment can even bleed into the now. Judgment isn't just one day in the future. It could be even now, right? He's going to throw her on the sickbed now. That's what he's saying. And we need to be aware. Some of us were riddled with disease. Some of us have had really, I don't know, bad accidents. And I want to be careful here because I am not saying... When you are in pain, you must have sinned. That's also heresy. I think it's also a mistake to say your pain has nothing ever to do with God putting something in your life to wake you up. No, sometimes. Sometimes it does. 1 Corinthians 11, prime example. So we're to be careful to correct, reprove, teach from God's word, Test everything and only cling to the things that are good. Only cling to the things that are true. And if we carefully guard against deception, Jesus will grant us the the right to reign with him. There's the main point that he's been driving at. If we guard against deception, Jesus will get us all the way through. He'll grant us the right to reign with him. Quickly, you see that in verse 24. He says, But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast. There it is. Test all things. Hold to what is true, what is good. Hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. That's him. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Can I just blow your mind for a minute? Any of you have ever read Psalm 2? Psalm 2 tells all the nations that rage against the sun, you better kiss them now. Because there will come a time where the window has passed to kiss the sun, and he will crush you like shattering earthware. Now Jesus says, if you endure to the end, I'm going to give you share in that. I mean, Jesus is king. We're not all kings, but we're a part of this kingdom where we rule the nations that oppressed us. In the end, Christ's kingdom stands, and he invites us to experience Psalm 2 with him. If we're in him, and he's our king, and he rules and reigns, that's our state in the end, sharing that rule and authority with Jesus Christ. Our reward is to reign with Christ. And we guard against deception by our unity with Christ's reign now. And we hold to his standards. We hold to his agenda, not the world's agenda. And we don't tolerate false citizenship through false teaching. We make the gospel clear. God, there's a separation between us and God. It's not everybody come however you want. There's one way to come. 
That's through the God-man, the only one who can make that bridge in the gap between God and lost man. And everyone's lost. All fall short of God's glory. And so the only appropriate bridge is the God-man, Jesus Christ himself. How does Jesus enfold you into his kingdom? Through repentance and faith. Repentance, because you have to at least recognize you had to cross that bridge. If you didn't need that bridge, you don't need Jesus. But if you need the bridge, then you should repent, because it's your own sin that keeps you from God. But if we are folded into Christ through faith and repentance, he makes us into worshipers. And what does Revelation teach us? He makes us into conquerors and rulers in the end. And it's tied and wed to faithfulness to God's revealed word. We know we'll reign in the end with our Lord if we persevere against false teaching. False doctrine always always leads to immorality of some kind. There's no such thing as a benign false doctrine. It always leads to some kind of immorality. And that lure toward that immorality is what makes the false doctrine palatable. I want that to be true because then it allows me to do this or that. But people who truly embrace Christ, we're not perfect, but we pursue him and we grow and we mature and we learn more and we obey more. So as a church, that's how we endure. Let's protect one another. Let's test all things together so we can hold firm to the end. Let's pray. Father, as we close in the song, we do that trusting you to hold us, keep us, guide us. We pray that our faithfulness as a church would be proven all the way to the end on that day when we toss our crowns before you our victory is yours you're the one who grants it it's your grace it's your power your strength that we lean into to make it to the end father we pray that you would give us every step of the way everything we need even the time to repent and give us hearts to do it when we need it and help us to do it together and we pray in jesus name amen would you stand and we'll close together in a